Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. My husband was making obnoxious sounds in the other room the other day, and I'm sitting there with my two-year-old and just kind of having it say to her, you know, Dada is a barbarian, honey. And she corrects me. She says, no, Mama, Dada is a man. To which I absolutely lost it laughing. She's right. She's right. There are differences between men and women, and that's why we talk about them today. During our weekly marriage hour, we're talking about everything from finances. Joining me from WalletWin.com will be John and Amanda Texera. We're going to talk about how you can get your spouse interested in finances and budgeting and do so without harming your marriage, getting into a fight, because that's a legitimate challenge. We're also going to talk about what the best way is to combat impulse spending And if you're getting ready for Easter, you're trying to figure out what to put in the Easter baskets, and maybe you're like me, you don't do the candy really, or you really try to limit it, um, spend your money instead on some good Catholic children's books. I have some favorites that I will be talking about today on Trending with one of the editors from Ignatius Press. So stay with me. I'll talk about some fantastic books uh, that you can pick up for your family to tuck into those Easter baskets. It's a good time to pick those up. A lot of them are on sale as well. And we're going to talk about male-female differences, why honoring and respecting those differences is important. The church encourages us in understanding we have differences all the way down to the level of not just biology, uh, but even down to the level of the soul. So we'll talk about honoring the differences within the context of marriage and what neuroscience has to say that we can learn from. You're listening to Trending with Timory. The number is 1-888-914-9149. If you have a question, especially about finances today, it's an open line. So ask your questions. It's our weekly marriage hour. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Joining me now are John and Amanda Texera. They are from WalletWin.com, giving a Catholic take on finances and budgeting. John and Amanda, thank you for being back today to talk about not wrecking the marriage while actually having a budget and a financial plan. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so I was written last time you were with me by Mike, who said, what can I do to take to make my wife interested in budgeting? We both know it's important for our family. How do we do it together? We only have one income source coming from myself. So let's go ahead and start with this. But I do laugh just at the question of itself. How do I make my wife interested in budgeting? Isn't that the crux of the matter? We can't make our spouse do anything. <laughs> um, so maybe that's the first hurdle to jump over. Um, maybe just addressing that because I know you work with couples on finances. And then let's get into the nitty gritty. You got it absolutely right. Uh, we don't want to approach our spouse and try to get them on our page we want to get on the same page with them together. Now, maybe the page you have in mind is a pretty good page, and they might end up there eventually. But we need the the main goal at the beginning, certainly, and the whole way through, is to be a team on whatever topic it is, but certainly your finances. It's better to be together on this and maybe not have everything in the right place than to have one of you cooking on all cylinders and the other one out to lunch. 
This is really where our story began, Timory, was back when we were engaged, we started to have the financial conversations. And I was definitely one of those people who had a plan and wanted Jonathan to get on board with it. <laughs> and so things were a little bit rocky there at the beginning. And so I kind of learned all the ways not to approach, you know, your fiance or your spouse about getting on the same page with your money. But through that, we were able to find the ones that worked. And as time went on, we were able to show those to other people and see how they were repeatable for other couples as well. So, John, do you want to share just a little bit of your own journey of how we became a team? Absolutely. Uh, it ties in actually a lot with what you started the top of the show with, that there are these differences with men and women. And of course, there's generalities and a lot of the time they are true. But for me as a man, as the husband, as the man of the family, the provider, um, I felt like I needed to have it all together. I needed to have the plan. And if we didn't have a plan, I would make it up, even though it was me and how I handled my spending that got us into trouble uh, in the first place. But you know what? I was going to do it. I didn't want any help. Uh, I wanted to figure out that plan. And so it's coming into that knowing, okay, your husband wants to provide for you. He wants to be the leader here. He wants to be the hero. And so you can't come in, all right, honey, we're not going to, you're going to cancel the, the cable. You're not going out with the buddies. No more Amazon. Like that's not going to happen. That's not going to work. <laughs> for the uh, wife to the other do way that too, to the husband, right? if it, you're saying. Yes. And if, and it's mm -hmm. the, it the other way, the other too, way too. you know, you're not going to come in and go, all right, babe, you're never setting foot in target again. I think you've got enough <laughs> shoes and no more brunch with the ladies. It's not, that doesn't work. No, everybody's going to clam up and now be defensive and fight yeah. for what they were doing before. Mm -hmm. But it's also not fair. You know, it's funny because we've had to find our own groove in terms of finances as well. Uh, kind of similarly in the beginning, um, you know, it was just something I was already doing. I was on top of, I enjoyed categorizing the finances and I was kind of doing it on my own. And, you know, we were, had to find the balance of being on the same page and then what was better when he took ownership of it. Um, and then, you know, it was hard too, because I kind of felt like that jerk gatekeeper where you toe the line, you toe the line, you say, no, 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 no. And you're that mean, terrible person. And then you feel guilty at a certain point. Uh, and next thing you know, you cave and you just say, oh, you know, and you start to justify everything. And then you find yourself not following any budget at all because you're the only mm -hmm. person maybe at times leading that budget. There's got to be that balance of the two. Exactly. And so the best strategy that we've found in helping spouses talk about money in a conflict-free way is really twofold. The first step of it is to unpack each of your pasts with money. So how did you talk about money growing up? What was money spent on growing up? Really unpack everything that your family of origin gave you around personal finances. Most of us as adults have never done that process. So we need to understand where we're coming from and then be able to articulate that to one another. And some of those things that are with us from our past aren't actually healthy or serving us. And so we need to be able to identify those and set them aside. And then maybe some of the things were actually healthy and good, and we want to bring them forward in the marriage. And so just by talking about that is going to help eliminate some of those shames or blaming. And now you have a shared understanding of how you're both coming to the table. And then the second part of that is to come up with a, a shared future together. Um, talking about where you feel like God's calling you in your marriage, dreaming together, 
Do you want to buy a house in a couple of years? Are you hoping to grow your family? Do you want to get out of debt? What would life be like if you had these things happen? And those are really motivating. For those dreams, I can go ahead and leave the second pair of shoes that I don't need. For those dreams, maybe you're not going to go out with your buddies one extra time that month. And all of a sudden, your dreams are why you are maybe saying no to certain things because really you're just, you have a deeper yes and both of you are united in that. And so it does all the heavy lifting. There doesn't have to be a bad guy anymore. Your dreams are doing the driving for you. I'm glad you mentioned that because it even made me think of, okay, here we are coming up on Easter. And I know a lot of people, you know, maybe you grew up, at least in our family, we always got new dresses for Easter, right? And so I have in my head now, I have two little (laughs) girls and I need to buy those Easter dresses. Well, we moved back to California and you basically have no money living in California, right? I mean, (laughs) let's be really honest here. And so I had this thing stuck in my head that everyone needed a new dress, including myself. And I kind of came to my husband. I was toying with the idea. You know, we're still recovering from having moved cross country. And I said, you know, can I get dresses for all of us? And I know as I'm asking it that there's at least something that I can wear and the baby can wear. And, you know, if you're talking about it, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. That makes sense. And then I really realized, no, I shouldn't even be asking. The fact that there was hesitation says we really shouldn't be spending the money and we have things available. And it's so funny because that perspective shift and telling myself no and having that accountability looking at the budget made me go and look at the closet and see a plethora of options, especially for the girls, <laughs> uh, in terms of dresses and things that they've maybe never even worn before. But this idea of always having a new Easter dress was stuck in my head. And mm. I think ideas like that from even family of origin, good and fun things, can impact how we justify and end up negatively impacting our finances. Absolutely. And with the Easter dresses, I have totally been there before. And that's why I now love kids consignment sales or even the Mm, the buy nothing mm -hmm. Facebook groups, because there's probably another mom in your area who maybe has a couple of girls who are older than yours who maybe wants to pass along some Easter dresses. So sometimes there's a creative third way to scratch that itch that doesn't involve having to rejigger the budget. Yeah. And having the humility be willing to do that too, I think can't tell you how many moms I've talked to who like never would have thought of shopping at consignment stores or maybe stick up their nose when I say I do for my kids and myself. <laughs> uh, but like there's so many wonderful things you can purchase for way less than what's out there. Um, but joining us now are Amanda and John Texera. Uh, can you dive in, John, a little bit more to this whole topic of getting on the same page as spouses? Anything that we do uh, as a family, as a couple, we sh- should be attacking that as a team. Uh, Certainly with finances, it can be really easy to fall into a me versus you or him versus her dynamic instead of seeing it as us against, you know, that pile of debt or us working towards that big dream that we have together. Being on the same page is paramount. Uh, One, just for the, the practicalness of it, right? If one of you is going to be you know, planning how the money is going to be spent and keeping track of the spending. And then the other person just does whatever. Well, it doesn't really matter how on top of it, the the, the budgeting spouse is, the system's going to fall apart. Uh, and then also like, I mean, we got married, right? It's we're two become one. We are a team here. Let's do this as a, as a family. We have, we have been entrusted with so many things. Um, our gifts, our talents, our children, um, our interests, all of that, and definitely our money. And as a family, we are 
asked to handle those well, to be uh, good stewards of everything that we've been given. And so every family is unique. Every family has some particular calls that the Lord has put on their heart. And the way we handle money allows us to say yes to those calls and can in and of itself even be a way that we come close to the Lord and understand our relationship with him. I appreciate you emphasize that unique element of it as being good stewards too, because and I relate to this in a certain respect of just the decision we made to move back to Southern California after living in the Midwest for a couple of years. It's a huge financial sacrifice, a huge mm-hmm. financial sacrifice, but one that for us was important for everything from being your family, our community, um, having you know, beautiful weather that we really love and, you know, <laughs> having to readjust, you know, how we look at what we have and whether that's good stewardship, even coming back within that context, you mentioned good stewardship, but the uniqueness of each situation. Um, so you've emphasized a few really important things. Um, looking together at your past finances and how you've related to finances, what needs to change. Uh, two, you mentioned mo- being motivated by goals and figuring out what your goals are so that you can take that control of your spending. Like, okay, we're saving to buy a house. So that's why we're not spending anything and skimping on everything from groceries to you name it. Um, there, there's a plan, um, but we're being good stewards by having that direction. What other tips do you have for getting on the same page with your spouse And especially with the side of not allowing the disagreements to prevent you from ever even talking about it. Mm. This one is one of my favorite things that we started doing early on, and it's hosting budget parties. Uh, So Jonathan and I are absolutely opposite temperaments. (laughs) So we kind of came up with this just by the sheer... To make sure I would show up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whoever is the spouse that maybe just wants to stare at a spreadsheet, just know that you're probably not married to somebody who also wants to sit there and stare at a spreadsheet. You need to make this thing fun and interactive um, for certain temperaments. And so we host a monthly budget party when we create the next month's budget. And so this is a time where you're going to sit down together and you're going to talk about the next month, the money you have available, the different goals and priorities you have, but you're going to have a nice snack there. Maybe you're going to have a a delicious beverage, like a, a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. And you might even play a little music. Make this something that you want to show up to and your spouse wants to show up to. And it can be just this really disarming, positive, fun experience that every personality is now looking forward to. And at a budget party, you know, just the very nature of it being this positive, fun thing, it's going to help you with managing your tones and different things that can sometimes come off sideways as soon as you mention the word money. Um, It can kind of mitigate any sort of nagging or blaming because you're having a good time and you're talking about this next budget, which is going to be the tool that you use to get one month closer to all of those goals that you have together. Um, and you get to talk about your family and, and your marriage and get to talk about what each of you are excited about. And so that right there can do just a lot of the um, heavy lifting as far as getting both spouses down to practically talk about money on a monthly basis in a really positive, non-threatening way. Fantastic. Okay, so join me now, John and Amanda Texera from WalletWin.com. If you have a question, numbers one 888 914 
1-800-529-1149. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. We're going to come back talking about the best way to combat impulse spending. That is the spending that you didn't plan to actually do, uh, but you did it. And next thing you know, you're in credit card debt or you have no money for groceries. Um, or maybe you really have spent your spouse or lo and behold, you're not working your way toward the goal you hoped to achieve in the time that you hoped. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. If you have budgeting and finance questions, go ahead and ask them. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. WalletWin.com. My guests come from there giving a Catholic take on finances. It's our weekly marriage hour. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Especially talking about male-female differences. listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Walletwin.com, a Catholic take on finances. John and Amanda Texera joining me now to discuss your finances. If you have a question, you heard it. The number is 1-888-914-9149. Okay, this was a really intriguing question. Uh, impulse spending. So Anne from Illinois wrote in saying, impulse spending, what is the best way to combat this? So John and Amanda, can you tell us what impulse spending is so that we can do a little conscience check here to see if maybe we're engaging in this and then how to break the trend? Impulse spending is uh, unplanned spending, especially spending that was just spurred on in the moment. You saw something, you grabbed it, you put it in the cart, and now it's yours. That is an you buy it on an impulse. And I think that another note to clarify there is that some impulse spending, you know, your budget can recover from fairly easily, but then other types of impulse spending you have to go ahead and do what we call getting fudgy with the budgie. And now you have to rob Peter to pay Paul to pay Andrew. Mm -hmm. And you got the whole budget is now broken. <laughs> and sometimes that's where people feel the tension when impulse spending gets so out of control that it's not just, oh, I got a, a magazine once at Target. And it becomes a habit that is now wrecking your finances like a domino every single month. And that's when it's a signal to you of, okay, I need to probably rein this in. And so we have a few practical strategies for different personalities because it's going to show up differently depending on each unique temperament. So the let's talk thing. about those big areas where people tend to impulse buy. One area is, uh, well, I'll just tell you where I do my impulse spending, uh, is deals. I am a deal <laughs> hound. If it's on sale, I'm interested because <laughs> uh, I think because, oh, I'm saving money. Well, not really, because I was never planning to buy that in the first place. But magically, it's half off. So, hey, maybe I should get it. Uh, so the way to combat that is to know you're a deal hound. I know this about me. So I'm going to avoid certain sections of the store, especially during times when I don't want to be buying anything extra. I'm going to avoid the markdown section in the back of the grocery store. If I go to Target, I'm going to avoid those inner end caps where they put the clearance stuff. Uh, it's knowing what's going on. I know that's going to pull me in. And so right now, I'm going to just pull myself out of that situation where I will be tempted uh, 
to overspend. So the near occasion of spending, I want to avoid. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I was going to say that a different type um, could be just when somebody, you know, you, you're just excited about something you saw at the store. Um, maybe you got a sample at Costco and you instantly just, you, you're connected with it and you want to take it home. And sometimes it's a $5, you know, pound of cheese and that's not 10. a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and you bought 10. Yes. That, um, but you know, if it was the, uh, Vitamix blender at Costco, well, this now is something that is going to greatly impact my finances, but Costco has designed their store in such a way that makes me feel like I need this immediately now. And so for people who are roped in by maybe scarcity or feeling kind of like the, the, the rush of the deal in the moment, um, a 24 hour sleep on it rule is really important. And so if you are tempted to make an impulse purchase over a certain dollar amount, and I think this is important for a marriage, no matter what, to have agreed on a dollar amounts where if you want to spend in an unplanned way over this, we sleep on it for 24 hours just to make sure this is not actually rooted in, oh my goodness, I need this deal right now. And it's actually rooted in, oh, this will actually serve and better the family. And now we're deciding to make this purchase. I love that 24-hour rule as well as kind of knowing what your temptations are as well in terms of like what might be your thing. Like John, you mentioned uh, it's deals, right? Like deals is that trigger for you where you might impulse spend. Uh, one area where I know and I think it's a little hard to apply the 24-hour um, sleep on it rule is groceries. For me, like that's one of my biggest things I spend money on is, you know, good, healthy food. But there are two things that can go against me when I go to the grocery store that turns into an impulse buy. Um, one, if I have no plan for what we're going to be eating and I either make mm -hmm. a list, but I only have lists of things I want, but don't actually have a meal plan. Um, or two, because <laughs> you can have a list of things you want, but if you don't have a meal plan, you're going to have to go back multiple times. But the yes. second thing is if I'm hangry, if I'm hungry when I go to the mm -hmm grocery store, the impulse spending, I mean, we're talking, I mean, impulse spending when you're hungry, you don't have a plan, you can spend a whole extra $100 or more totally. on food very easily. Yeah. And we've learned that the hard way. We have absolutely been there. And I think a couple of years ago, you started stocking snacks in the glove department, Jonathan. If I, I think this was the reason why that trend began, because we realized that as a family, if we went into the store in that state, it was no good for anybody. Uh, and so that's really, really helpful. And particularly with grocery, grocery overspending or impulse buying, you know, one of the great inventions of modern day tech is now that we, you could, I know that grocery shopping is fun for some people, but mm -hmm. maybe you're in a state of life where it's stressful to go with all the kids or you're caught impulse spending. You could just order all of your groceries for either pickup or delivery. And that right there, even though you might be spending a little bit more on each item, it could mitigate and cancel all of the impulse items so that you kind of mm. come out at the same spend amount, but you didn't impulse. I like that. I think that's helpful, especially because you said even just the distraction. If you're going to the grocery store with multiple people, you lose focus. The next thing you know, you have more in your basket. But also, eating before <laughs> you go to the grocery store, having those snacks, 
um, or uh, just having that plan for what you're buying and what you're eating that week are so helpful. Um, let's talk about some of that psychological struggle that occurs when someone isn't just like a haphazard impulse spender, um, but they have to buy things because I think mm. that that's how far it can go for some people. And I would mm -hmm. argue for many people today, especially with this um, correlation or this disassociation with online shopping in particular. Yeah, I, I'm so happy that you brought this up um, because when we spend money, if if somebody had you know a scanner hooked up to our brains, you would actually be able to see hormones changing and shifting. I think that it's been proven that dopamine levels will rise up. And so we can actually get addicted to spending in order to feel good or to combat bad feelings. And this can become a problem. And impulse spending is absolutely can can go to this extreme for people where every time they have a negative emotion or a negative feeling, they want to go spend money. And now with the invention mm -hmm. of online shopping, you can do that easier than ever. I think we all saw the memes and the gifts during the pandemic of, you know, people, what they bought on Amazon, what and just the random stuff that kept showing up at their house because they were feeling lonely or isolated. Um, and so I think really at the bottom of that is that we all need to be mastering our emotions and building virtue into how we respond to, you know, those feelings that come up. And that at the end of the day, Jesus needs to be the one to to go tend to that that hurt place or that negative feeling that we have. And we need to be able to bring those to him and know that he's the only one who can satisfy, uh, not going and buying a latte that can feel good in the moment, but it won't really satisfy me. And so there's an element of being aware of what's going on underneath. And sometimes you're just not going to be in a position where you can go spend money. And so developing healthy coping mechanisms, you know, saying a prayer, going for a walk, drinking a glass of water, something that's not spending money can actually start to take the place of that. And then when those feelings come up, the trigger to just go impulse buy is no longer there after a while if you, you know, cut that trigger and habit off from each other. I have a question on that note, bringing the faith side of it. I really do think that um, there's so many areas where our consciences have lacked formation. And I think money is one of those areas and the material world we live in. Do you think we need to work on reforming our consciences when it comes to spending habits? Absolutely. Uh, we, one, of the be one of the beauties of uh, the Catholic faith is that she, the, the, the church gives us a, a great responsibility, a, a wide uh, berth for us to exercise our conscience, uh, to make prudential decisions. Now, that is all assuming that we have a well-formed conscience and that we can think through things rightly. Then, oh yes, please put that to work and make your decision. Uh, so if we, if we're not intentional about forming our ideas about money and our spending habits in light of the faith, well, then what is shaping them? Well, it's going to be, you know, the credit card companies and it's going to be the car salesman and it's going to be Amazon and it's going to be all the mm -hmm. people who are trying to just get you to spend more and and buy in more and more into consumerism. Right. And Instead, it seems normal, right? It seems normal. Oh, it's yes, just second nature. Absolutely. And that therefore we think that our consciences are okay because we're doing what everyone else is doing, buying things on credit, uh, getting that next new thing, even though what I have is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. 
yeah so we instead of looking around to see how we're doing because i mean if you look around you might be doing you know be a, be a whole lot better a lot more responsible maybe than some of the folks around right. you in the neighborhood mm -hmm. but you still might be falling short right. of the stewardship to which you are called mm -hmm. so we need to you know pray about our finances we need there the bible is chock full of money references whether it's speaking about it directly and teaching us a lesson about finances or using them as an, an example or as a teaching tool so many times jesus is bringing an image about finances or planning about it right the, who, who would build a tower without counting the cost and figuring out how much he needs first if you mm -hmm. don't know budgeting then you miss certainly how to handle your money but also the lesson he's trying to teach you about understanding discipleship and of course in addition to scripture we have the catechism talks about finances we have different encyclicals that touch on personal family economies mm -hmm. global economies um and then we have the lives of the saints to look to as well and yeah. i think oftentimes that we just you know as catholics have not unpacked our faith um our money in light of our faith and that's really what we're trying to do at wallow in is how do we bring these two things together and um what does the church have to share with us because we have two thousand years of of riches here and it's it's just ours for the learning and taking yeah. but what is there to sh to share yes and that website is walletwin.com a catholic take on finances last real quick question here patrick's asking what is a good minimum amount for couples to ask permission uh, from their spouse in terms of buying and spending limits i think this is a great question it's a good idea to to have that limit uh it's going to vary based on family to family uh because of you know your income levels and your amount of discretionary money and all that stuff uh i mean i'd say you could start somewhere anywhere between, you know, 50, 100, 200 dollars, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. Just kind of maybe just kind of think about it and think, okay, if she came home and said, you know, with these bags and I looked at the receipt and it said X amount, I'd be a little worried about where that's coming from. Maybe that might be the number or maybe a little mm -hmm. bit below that. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's John and Amanda from WalletWin.com. That's WalletWin.com. We'll be right back talking about children's books to stuff in your Easter baskets. We'll be joined by Vivian Dudrow from Ignatius Press to talk about those great books that you can put in instead of candy uh, that are lasting, inspiring about the saints, green and virtue. So stay with me. We'll be right back here on Trending. listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. Coming up, we're going to be talking about male-female differences, how important they are that we understand them, especially bringing some levity to those difficult moments in marriage. 
Uh, joining me now is Vivian Dudreau. She is an editor with Ignatius Press. We love Ignatius Press, an incredible Catholic book publisher, uh, books for adults, academics, and children. And I love some of their children's books. And so ahead of Easter, um, this is kind of your Catholic gift guide 101 for Catholic books, but also to put in your Easter baskets. Many of them are on sale right now. And there are some in particular. There's a Life of the Saints series that I have really been enjoying. Um, it's a little advanced for my two-year-old still. Um, I kind of have to go hide in the corner and finish reading the book as she only tolerates a couple pages of some of these stories. But we've been reading in particular stories such as Bernadette, the Little Girl from Lourdes, Therese, a Little Flower of Lisieux. Um, joining me now to discuss these are Vivian Dudreau. Vivian, you've edited these wonderful books for children. Can you tell us a little more about this um, series on the life of the saints for kids? Well, they're fully illustrated. So even though your two-year-old maybe can't sit through all of the every word, you're, she will certainly enjoy the beautiful illustrations Yes. on every page and yes. they're they're hardcover they're very high quality the paper is glossy and the pictures are big and colorful and we have one on Therese of Lisieux we have one on Mother Teresa uh John Vianney Bernadette Francis of Assisi and Peter the Apostle so these are the titles in the series and they're written by different people they're illustrated by different people but they all share in the same high quality of storytelling and uh, beautiful pictures. So you mentioned some of them, Bernadette, um, St. Therese, Mother Teresa, uh, John Mary Vianney. Um, these stories are ones that I love about uh, the fact that it gives this example of religious life to children as well. I know I've talked to a lot of people who said, you know, they think part of the reason why we don't have as many religious vocations today is because there aren't as many religious around, whether it be, you know, from Catholic schools and nuns used to, and priests used to teach in them. And so in my eyes, I think exposing kids to these stories of the saints and religious life, consecrated life, I think it provides a pretty significant model for little children. And I found, I found this to be so especially for my daughter with like the little St. Faustina book along with the St. Faustina stuffed animal type of stuffy thing that she really um, is able to cling to some of these stories and understand this is someone who loved God and dedicated their life to them. And that's what comes through in many of these stories for children. I agree with you. I, in fact, I had never thought of that before, that we don't have as many contemporary living examples around us. So how can we put before our children uh, examples of religious life through stories? You're absolutely right. And I think the key thing that's so inspiring is that every saint has a completely unique story. No two stories are the same because no two people are the same. And to see the way God speaks in the life of a person uh, can help uh, a child start to listen for God in his life. You know, how are, where are the ways that God is speaking to me? And I think these stories uh, help children to open their imaginations to all the possible ways uh, that could happen. 
thinking about the Life of the Saints series that you, as you mentioned, it's completely illustrated, beautiful, vivid uh, images and artwork throughout them. Uh, I find, I mentioned earlier, you know, my two-year-old can't quite sit still for the full story yet because there's, you know, good, rich, robust text and telling the story of the saint. Um, but it's also, like you said, they're the images. You can point to the images, you know, do the search and find on on the picture book as they're still learning about so many objects and naming things, but also self-narrating. Like these are stories I think that edify us as adults as well. I have, it's so funny, I have all of these Catholic saints cards here and my sister-in-law will go through and look at all the saints like, I didn't know about this saint. I'm reading that. I'm learning about this saint because of the saint book. Uh, it's an education for us at the same time as our children. And I know for me, Vivian, having a moment of having that childlike faith as well uh, and being influenced by these incredibly holy people who are saints with God in heaven. For sure that uh, children can look at the pictures and start identifying things at the at the two-year-old age, as you say. And also what you said about adults benefiting from books like this. Absolutely. I, I don't know who benefits more when who benefited more when I read aloud to my children, me or, or them, because uh, I was getting more out of it because we have more life experience. So we bring more to any story we read mm -hmm. and really good stories. You can tell it's a good story if it engages adults as well as children. Yes. So if it's not interesting to you while you're reading at bedtime and you're falling asleep because the story is boring, well, guess what? Your child isn't going to enjoy it either. So mm -hmm. uh, the story should be just as engaging for the adults as for the children. Can you speak for a moment, Vivian, to the significance of reading out loud to our children? Because I know my mom spent hours upon hours reading to us and how influential this was on us. And you know, I think it's something easily um, brushed by for many parents today in the busyness of life. Oh, I agree that people are making a big mistake if they're letting the busyness of life uh, push out this precious time that you can spend with your children reading aloud to them. I mean, I can begin to list for you all the benefits. First of all, studies have shown that that the um, mental capacity of the child grows, the, the vocabulary, the comprehension. Children will read sooner and better if they are read to out loud beginning at a very early age. Then there's just all the intimacy that you're having with the child is in your lap or or maybe the child's propped up on a pillow in bed and you're sitting next to the child and you're under a blanket and it's all very cozy. I mean, those are precious moments that, believe me, I'm a grandmother now. I, I look back on those years when my child, children were little uh, with such fondness and, and wish they hadn't gone by so quickly. Then there's the building a moral universe. When stories show goodness in action, uh, this becomes imprinted in the child's imagination. The child starts to learn to love the good even before the child can explain the difference between good and bad. Mm, You're presenting these role models mm. and they start to aspire to goodness even before they realize that that is what they're doing. So there's this moral universe that you're building in their imaginations by putting before them stories with great people in them. Mm -hmm. And then mm. there's the empathy uh, that you start building in a child because especially in these kinds of stories of saints, there's often quite a bit of pathos and suffering in their lives, right? And so you're already building in the child the capacity to feel what another person feels mm -hmm. and to care. 
and to yes. care that that person is feeling that way. The Therese a, book that you yes. wanted to talk about today, when Therese loses her mother, you right know. Right at the beginning of the uh, book. Yes. <laughs> I'm, and so I'm reading right it to away, my two-year-old. <laughs> I know. So that child is immediately going to have the capacity to empathize with someone suffering loss. So these, these benefits, how can you even measure them, really? There, there's just so many good things that come from uh, reading aloud to children. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the St. Therese book because right there at the first couple of pages we're introduced to the story where St. Therese's mother, um, St. Zaley Martin, is dying. And, you know, my two-year-old is grasping something's happening. And I don't know what she fully understands about death, but she's understanding some significance that she's pausing and she's really listening and she's kind of just, you see her mind thinking. And I know some people might want to shield from the ideas of death um, or, you know, kind of adult type topics that the reality is kids will deal with as well, whether it's the loss of a grandparent, maybe the loss of a sibling, uh, the reality of life that you're exposing to in a story on your terms as a parent. And that comes back to that whole idea that we as parents are those primary educators of our children. And what a wonderful way to help in that formation through, as you mentioned, I love what you called it, Vivian, the moral universe that books provide of telling stories of good and evil and exposing children to those before they ever even encounter these situations in real life. That's right. That's right. You're actually, you know, we're capable of learning vicariously from others. We don't have to experience everything that is possible to be experienced in order to grow in wisdom. We do grow in wisdom from our own experiences, but we can also grow in wisdom through the experiences of others. And so when you open the world of books opens up to a child, a much bigger world than their own limited one and the treasures that they can find there once they get going uh, are vast. So maybe you're an aunt or an uncle, a grandparent or a parent. You have children in your life. These are books you want to pick up. We're posting links in the episode notes uh, for today's show to Ignatius Press and some of the great books, St. Bernadette, St. Therese of Lisieux, um, St. John Vianney, and many others. Uh, one other series I do want to mention, Vivian, I know you edited these Life of the Saint series books from Ignatius Press, but you've also edited a fantastic series on the virtues and emotions. We live at a time where emotional integrity is just horrible right now with mental health. People don't know, okay, I'm feeling sad. That doesn't mean that has to consume me. I'm feeling angry. That doesn't mean I have to act on it or I'm feeling afraid. So you helped in compiling and editing the How to Handle My Emotion series covering fear, anger, joy, and sadness. Can you tell me a little bit more about these series, this series as well? I, I am so excited about this series. I wish I had these series when my children were young, and I wish I had these series when I was young, because I don't think many of us are taught that our emotions in and of themselves are neither good nor bad. It comes into play when I decide what to do about that emotion. And so these books, each of these books tells three stories about things that happen to young children. We're talking between the ages of seven and up, because in order to process emotion, you have to be at a certain maturity level, right? So these children experience things that all children's experience, you know, someone moving away, someone being a bully, uh, a new teacher, uh, you know, something dangerous or scary happening, being sad because someone in the family that's close to you is dying. All The whole range of human experience that children experience are in stories at their level. And what you see is the child encountering an experience 
bringing about an emotional response, as you just said, anger, sadness, fear, or joy. And then the child is taught, okay, so you're feeling angry and anger is telling you that there's something that isn't quite right. But what do you do about it? Do you, do you, do you reward uh, a bully by being a bully yourself? Or do you find some creative way of responding to that situation? Do you just cower in fear or do you find within yourself the courage to do what needs to be done or to tell the truth or whatever virtue is being presented to the child as an option that he can actually choose for himself in that situation. So these books are just fabulous with giving children not only um, insight into their own emotional life, but then practical wisdom on how to respond. I love it because as you mentioned, it helps a child to acknowledge and own an emotion they're they're experiencing, kind of knowing some of the markers because there are physiological responses to certain um, types of emotions in particular when you're angry, the body starts to respond when you're afraid, the body responds. And so you can maybe say, oh, wow, I'm feeling sick right now. That feeling is connected with this emotion. What will I do with it? And where can virtue enter in? And that hits the nail on the head, Vivian, because you mentioned that the virtues are actually taught. And I think this is a real crisis in our um, moral theology today is that very few Catholics have received formation on what the virtues are, how to pursue them, how they're graces and gifts from God, and that we need them. I know so many people, Vivian, who are turning to Buddhism and Hinduism because they actually talk about virtues, yet that's at the core of the Catholic tradition that has been lost in a modern-day education today. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Buddhism because it's a completely different approach mm -hmm. the approach of of being detached to the point of not feeling an emotion at all which is not the christian approach the christian approach is actually to embrace and pass through that emotion but to pass through it with christ so that you can, it can become a redemptive act that's a very very different thing from just uh using meditative practices or something to kind of numb away emotions Versus, no, I'm angry. There's something wrong here. I'm not just going to sit passively. I need to do something. Ah, but what is it that you're supposed to do? How can you act in the situation in a virtuous way so as not to just continue the cycle of violence and retribution? Mm, that's really profound what you just said, that that detachment um, and almost that like rejection of what you're experiencing in Buddhism versus the embracing of that suffering or anger and passing through it with virtue with God, that we don't have to do it alone. And that's another part of it that kids learn that we're not in isolation. We're not in this crisis that we're all alone in society where so many people um, are experiencing this social isolation, this disconnectedness from themselves, their bodies, their emotions. Others, mm -hmm. you know, I think about the awful Nashville massacre that happened this week and this woman, this 28-year-old woman who identified as transgender, you know, who was there to help her process through those emotions that could have helped her um, in preventing her from going to do what she did. I mean, the, emo the lack of emotional integrity was so profound that when we talk about how do we solve the crises in our culture, forming children, I think these books are a key part in that we don't realize how simple it is but with great diligence as well on the part of parents. Right. And I like the fact that in all these books, the parents play a key role in every story uh, in, in reinforcing for the child 
uh, how to think about the situation, what to do about the situation. I really love the portrayal of the parents in these books because sometimes with this sort of formation, uh, it kind of gets yanked out of the hands of the parents and handed over to teachers or professionals or counselors or, you know, it could be that in an extreme situation, some kind of professional help is called for. But really, what a child really needs is for his own mother and or father to say, now let's think about this situation. Do you really think that going and hitting that guy is going to fix the problem? Or do you really think that your, your new teacher is as bad as you feel she might be? Mm-hmm. How about looking at it this way or that way? Or I love the father in the uh, one of these stories where uh, the boy has done something that he isn't admitting. And the father at the dinner table says, well, you know, when that person is ready, you know, feel free to come forward in one way or another. You could even write a note, you know. (laughs) So I actually, parents can learn tips from these stories, too, as to how to help a child cope with a strong emotion. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, these books are edifying parents as well, whether it be the Life of the Saint series or How to Handle My Emotions series, but both of which Vivian Dudreau from Ignatius Press edited. These are great books to slide into the Easter basket. Or if you're getting ready, I am like that total Catholic aunt um, mom who gets everything Catholic gifts and books for everyone. But you know what's funny is that sometimes I get a little embarrassed that that's all I'm getting the kids. I'm not getting them these like hot new toys that are on the market, but they like them. And you know what's funny? I think the parents even more so like them because it's a moment for teaching their faith and giving them a tool um, that otherwise they wouldn't necessarily have. Well, and also parents need other adults in the in the lives of their children to reinforce what they themselves are trying to teach them mm-hmm. you know you a, a parent can give a religious book to a child and the child sort of rolls his eyes but now his uncle gives him that book oh maybe i'll give i'll maybe i'll take a look at it so uh parents need all the help they can get like, from other supportive adults it's a great idea if you're a godparent. This is something you can get as well um, for those godchildren in your life because that's what the role of godparents are, to come in and aid the parents in the upbringing of the child and the faith, to give that support uh, for these children, to be that example. You're listening to Trending with Timory. That's editor Vivian Dudreau from Ignatius Press. Children's books for your Easter baskets. Go and order them. Many of them are on sale now. They'll be in the episode notes as well as posted on social media. Thank you for joining me, Vivian. Coming up next is a family rosary across America. Don't worry, we'll get into those male-female differences in marriage tomorrow here on Trending. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Sister Tina Alfieri, a hermit and nun, is here to help us answer that question that maybe you're asking yourself. We're coming up on the end of Lent, and maybe you're wondering... How will this carry over? Will I continue to grow? Will I flop because I didn't really do what I hoped to do this Lent? Or will I still see transformation in myself after the celebration of Easter and in the season of Easter? So join me daily, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.